If you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn to Psalm 139. Now, uh, some of you might be like, that's not in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Kudos for paying attention. That is not in the Gospel of Mark. Let me explain what's going on this morning. Um, This past week marked the 49th anniversary of the Roe versus Wade decision. Um, And what a growing number of churches around the country are beginning to do um, on this weekend every year is taking some time to pause and to reflect on what God says about uh, the sanctity of human life and how we as the people of God can best respond to the topic of abortion in our day. Um, And now look, I know this is a very um, sensitive and personal topic for many of us. Um, I know there's some of you that you've been nervous since you got that bulletin when you walked in this morning. I know there's some of you that are like, I can't believe I picked today to go to church. And so before we get in, um, I just want to begin by reminding us of the truth that we just sang. That there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. That our God is a God of grace who when he is faced with human sin, he doesn't recoil from us and go, ew, but he bends toward us and his son to extend mercy and forgiveness and grace. Isn't this what we're seeing in the gospel of Mark? That our God is a friend of sinners and a refuge to the broken. And so the only one, the only person who should have anything to fear in this room this morning is the person who walks in here and says, I've got it all figured out. I don't struggle with anything. I am morally superior. If anything, I'm just here to support you people. That's the person that should be terrified. That's the people that in the gospel of Mark hate Jesus. So, so if you come in here and, and, and you are nervous this morning, Um, If you are trembling, if there's something in your story that makes you want to jump out of your skin right now, I want to encourage you, it's not too big for him. In fact, that might be the very reason. It certainly is the very reason that Christ came. And maybe he brought you here this morning so that he could bring healing to that part of your story. Because he loves you. And so I I know it may be difficult for some of you to enter in. um, But I want to encourage you. You can enter in with confidence, because the gospel is true, because there is no sin with more power than the cross of Jesus Christ. And that means there's nothing we can see in our text today that will be able to separate you from his love this morning. That's right, man, we're, we're getting all Baptist charismatic here. Amen. All right. Um, now, hey, that said, I do think we need to enter in, because throughout human history, there's been this tendency Uh, to deny the humanity of certain groups of people to the convenience of other groups of people. Um, I mean, gosh, you don't even have to go far back in history. 200 years ago in our country, our brothers and sisters, our black brothers and sisters were considered legally property, not people. And this is how the madness of slavery was justified. Because when you deny the humanity of a group of people, you can do anything to those group of people. And, and so there's this tendency in human history, you see it in every culture throughout all times, and I would submit to you that the same thing is happening today with the unborn, where um, people will come to this issue and they will say, hey, look, the question, it's not about the morality of this. The question is about, does a woman have the choice, does she have the right to choose what goes on in her own body? And when you frame the issue that way, the answer seems so obvious. But I just want to point out this morning, when you frame the issue that way, you're making a massive assumption. 
You are assuming that the child in the womb isn't a human with an identity and value of his or her own self. You are assuming that's a part of the woman's body. And I will just tell you, that is a massive assumption. And this is not an area that humans have been very good with our assumptions at historically. And so I just want to ask the question this morning. I want to slow us down in light of our troubled past at denying the humanity of whole groups of people. What if we would just slow down and ask the question, what if that's not true? What if life in the womb really is human? Um, wouldn't, that, wouldn't that change everything? I mean, I think it's got to. Because if you've been coming here for any amount of time, you know I've been lobbying for a dog at home. Now, let's say this. If God were to just graciously move today and grant that miracle, Karen says, the Holy Spirit spoke to me during the sermon, we are to have a dog. Um, and we go home. I'll tell you this. She's going to love that dog. It's going to be awesome. Or we're going to have a grand old time. But um, let me just give you a scenario. If, if some financial hardship were to happen, which after the last two years, you shouldn't have to use your la- imagination. What if something crazy happened where our family was in a financial hardship and someone had to go? And, and Karen, Karen looks at her and she's like, man, I didn't think I'd like the dog so much. I really like the dog. I really like the kids. Like, is that going to be a difficult moral question for her? It, it shouldn't be. And like, frankly, if Karen said, you know, I actually do like this dog and I really like the kids. And you know what? Chad has life insurance. So I think I'll off him. We'd all be horrified, right? Some of you are like, not right now. I would not be. Um, but, but here's the thing. I hope we can all agree that all of human life is sacred and has value because as we said in our Genesis series, all human life has been made in the image of our creator. And so all humans possess this inherent dignity, value, and worth regardless of what value we bring to society. Regardless of what an idiot I can be about the dog, I'm still more valuable than the dog. That's not a difficult moral question. All of human life has inherent value because it is made in the image of our creator. And um, here's the really interesting thing I've found as I've engaged with my pro-choice friends. Um, uh, Here's what I found. And this may surprise you, but they believe this too. They believe that human life is valuable. You know, our culture is so shaped on the bedrock of Christianity that no matter how secular we get, we can't escape Christian concepts like uh, human value and dignity and justice. So no matter how secular the, the person in your life that you love is, I bet you if you sit down and have a conversation with them and say, hey, am I more valuable than my dog? They would say, of course you are. Because our culture at large has been shaped by the Bible. And no matter how far we run from the Bible, that value of human rights still exists. So um, I I don't know if I'm just going to blow your mind right out of the intro, but I bet you your pro-choice friends believe that all of human life is worth protecting. Um, The thing is, they just don't believe the child in the womb is human. And and it's not just my friends. If you're thinking like, you you talk to some weird people. Let me read to you from the Roe versus Wade decision. This is uh, the justice who's writing the majority opinion. Let me just read you what he wrote because I think he's on to something here. He says, if the suggestion of personhood is established, Roe's case, of course, collapses. For the fetus's right to life would then be guaranteed specifically by the 14th Amendment. And so the real question, it's not one of choice. That's a silly way to mask the real issue. The real question, even as the judge in the case said it, is one of personhood. 
is the child in the woman human or not? And, and that's a question I want to invite you to enter in. And I know we all have strongly held beliefs on this. I'm no fool. I would simply ask you that this question is too important to come in here with your preconceived notions and not hear it with an open mind. And so I want to invite you to just approach us with an open mind as we hear from God's word. Um, and I think if you can do that, the word of God's going to press on all of us today and lead all of us into more life. Are you ready? All right. We're going to begin in Psalm 139 this morning. Oh, I forgot to put my marks on my Bible here. Give me a moment. Psalm 139. Oh, thank you, Jesus. That one was quick. Okay. Psalm 139, what this is, is this is a poem about um, really the human experience. Um, Psalm 139, it's really a poem about what it means to be human. According to the scriptures, um, the real depth of human life is to know and to be known and to commune with our creator. We saw that from page one of the Bible on. That's what the Bible says leads to true life, is to know and commune with our creator. And listen to what King David writes about the human experience. Psalm 139, we'll start in verse one. Oh Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. What David is celebrating here is he says, God, you, you know me. Like, you, you know me. That is a profound statement. Um, if I were to say to you, um, hey, Tom Brady knows me, uh, you would say, no, you know about Tom Brady, because the goat certainly doesn't know you. Um, and, and, and yeah, you'd be right. Like, I might watch him prove his greatness later today on TV, that doesn't mean that I know Tom Brady, but what if I told you, no, 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 like, actually, we went to college together. Uh, we're actually buds. Um, I actually do know Tom Brady, and after he reigns in victory today, he's going to come to my house. We're going to celebrate. It's going to be an awesome time. I know Tom Brady, and Tom Brady knows me. You would all, you'd all think a lot more highly of me, or some of you less highly of me. But that's a big claim. Now, David's making an even more amazing claim here. He's not talking about the greatest football player, perhaps the greatest athlete of all time. He is talking about the God who created the universe. And what he says is, the God who made all of this, he knows me. He knows me by name. He knows me so well. We are so close that he knows my thoughts that before I can even finish him, he's finishing my sentences. And what David says is, this knowledge, it's too wonderful for me. And so he starts singing. He writes this poem. This is a man who is fully alive. This is a man who is experiencing what it means to be human, to know and to commune with our creator. What we're getting in the first six verses are a picture of what our first parents experienced in the Garden of Eden, to know and to be known by God. This is what you and I are made for. This is what separates us from the animals. Because I'll tell you this, um, your dog might be amazing, but he doesn't lay awake at night thinking about ultimate reality. He doesn't pray to the Lord on your behalf. I'm sorry to burst your bubble. That is something uniquely given to humans, made in the image of God, that we might relate to our creator in a way that the rest of the created order can't. 
To be human is to know and be known by our creator. And that's what David is celebrating here. He knows God, is known by God, and he says, this reality, it's too wonderful for me. I have to sing about it. And so the question we should be asking, if that's what it means to be human, then the question we should be asking is, when did that knowledge begin? We'll continue on. Verse 13. For you formed my innerward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully married. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written every one of them, the days they were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. What David says is, God, you have known me from the time I was in my mother's womb. Now, that's an even more amazing statement. He's already claimed to know the God of the universe. Like, that's a big deal. We should all lean in and listen to this guy. But now what he says is, God has actually known me from the time I was in my mother's womb. That's an amazing statement. What, what he's just said is that from the time that you and I were in utero, God knew us. That God knew uh, the purpose for which he has designed our life. And that as we are swimming around in utero there, God is at work in the womb, woven into us the things that we will need to walk in the purpose for which he has for us. So that means that when I was um, back in the 80s and hair was awesome and music was great and I'm swimming around in utero there, God knew me. And he put his hand on my mother's womb and he said, he's going to need big vocal cords. He's a talker. He's passionate, so he wove that into me. And look, I know some of you are like, I don't like my body. But what this text just says is that God has woven you uniquely for the purpose he has for you. That you are not an accident, that you are his masterpiece. And just as he wove into me the things needed for my purpose, he has uniquely woven into you the things for your purpose. And look, I can go on and on and on about all of this. Um, But the point for now is that God knows unborn children from the time that they are in the womb. That from the time they're in utero, God knows them. He knows their purpose. He's working in their life. And look, I know there's some of you that are going to be like, ah, but that's poetic language. Remember, we talked about this in Genesis. You can't take that literally. Okay, awesome. Thanks for paying attention. Um, But it's not just in the Psalms. The scriptures will declare this throughout. And so um, I'd invite you to flip over to Luke chapter 1. Luke is a biography. So we'll move from poetry to biographies. Uh, It's it's not just any biography of Jesus' life. This one's written by a medical doctor. So in other words, this guy knows what he's talking about. Luke chapter 1. Here's what we read. Continuing on this theme, we'll pick it up in verse 39. It says, in those days, Mary, that's the mother of Jesus, arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judea, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now, to catch you up on the story, Elizabeth is at this moment pregnant with the great prophet John the Baptizer. Verse 41, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. 
And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Did you catch what happened there? Mary walks in with Jesus in her belly. And there's Elizabeth with John in her belly. And Mary walks in. And John leaps inside of Elizabeth. He flips over. Some of you have had this experience. And Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, with all insight and wisdom, does not attribute this to some random spasm or the growth of cells or particles. What she says, filled with the Holy Spirit, is that baby just leapt for joy. That baby's feeling emotion in there. What we see from Dr. Luke is that babies in the womb can feel emotion. And look, I know some of you are like, well, sorry, Dr. Luke. I consulted WebMD, and WebMD says that a fetus is a clump of cells, and a clump of cells clearly cannot feel emotions. Well, let's, let's talk about that, because I know that idea is widely out there, and this is one of the areas that science is actually finally catching up to the Bible, so I'm glad to talk about it. Um, I don't know if you think about this often, but when the Roe versus Wade decision was handed down in 1973, so before I was alive, before I was even a twinkle in my mother's eye, this is a long time ago, when the Roe versus Wade decision was handed down, they didn't know what we know today. Science has come a long way in the last 49 years. What we know today is that an unborn child can suck her thumb in the womb, can produce tears, can make facial expressions. Like we now have 3D sonograms where we can see that they're smiling at us. And all this happens because at just eight weeks, at eight weeks, so this is when you're still throwing up, at eight weeks, all of the major organs are functioning. And so as the journey goes on, um, we now know that they can respond to music and sounds and light stimulus. Uh, There's increasing evidence building um, that they can dream in utero. And here's the really crazy one. Here's the one you've got to do business with this morning. It is an undisputed scientific fact that babies in the womb can feel pain. And, and, and you might have some moron post on your Facebook page like, no, they can't. That's disputed. You need to ask them where they got their medical license from. Because here's what the scientific, here's what the medical textbooks say to do. The medical textbooks and standard industry practice is to use fetal anesthesia if you're going to do surgery in utero after 20 weeks because we know that they can feel pain. All of the nervous system is there. All of the synapses and brain is working. And it's not theoretical. I can't press this point hard enough because there's people that will lie to you. It is not theoretical. You can read the testimony of doctors that they will see on the sonogram when they reach in there with the needle that the baby will recoil from it. We know that they feel pain. This is why, regardless of your view on abortion, standard practice is to apply fetal anesthesia after 20 weeks. We have seen it. And why can they feel pain? Because this is not a clump of cells. This is a child that is capable of experiencing emotions like joy and pain. This is a human that is capable of saying, hey, there's Jesus, and of saying, ouch, that hurts. This is a human made in the image of God, just like you and me. And the Bible's been telling us this for 2,000 years. 
This is not a potential human life. This is a human life. And this is why the Bible considers a life inside the womb is every bit as valuable as life outside of it. You've got to hear that today. The Bible considers life inside the womb is just as valuable and worthy of protection as life outside of it. Let me give you one of the places you can see this. Exodus chapter 21. Um, This is coming from the Torah, from the law that God gave to Israel to teach them how to be his people. And in Exodus 21, starting in verse 22, we read this. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman... By the way, when they strive together, this doesn't mean that they like punch her in the face intentionally. This is talking like two guys are fighting and a woman is accidentally struck. Some of you are like, what was going on in Israel? Okay. Um, When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her child, uh, children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him. And he shall pay as the judge determines. But if there is harm, harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. What the Torah is telling us here, what God is saying to his people is that if two guys are fighting and they hit a woman and her child comes out prematurely, If there's no damage done to the child, well, you're going to pay a fine because it's not cool to hit a lady, even if that's accidental. So you're going to pay a fine. Um, But if there is harm done, if that child dies, you're not paying a fine. No amount of money and social privilege will get you out of this. It's going to be life for life, wound for wound, because your life is just as valuable as their life and their life is just as valuable as your life. Now, this doesn't mean that we seek the death penalty for those that have uh, had an abortion. Um, Some people will actually argue that from this verse because they don't understand how the Mosaic law relates to Christians under the new covenant or all of God's people or all people in the world. And they certainly don't understand the cross and grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. So I end up here arguing for capital punishment this morning. What I'm saying is, The moral reasoning in Exodus 21 is crystal clear and consistent from cover to cover in the Bible. That according to our creator, life in the womb is just as valuable as life outside of it. And look, if you've got questions like, well, how do I relate the Mosaic Law to today? Ask about it in the Q&A. You can do that online. But I don't want to get lost in that discussion. I want you to see the clear moral principle in this text. The life in the womb is just as valuable as life outside of it. You and I might make some arbitrary distinction of viability or inside or out of the womb or based on the color of skin, how valuable a person is, but God makes no such distinctions. He knows us. He has made us in his image. And what he has declared is that life in the womb is just as valuable as life outside of it. That unborn children are just as human as you and me. And if that's true... If that's true, then what abortion is, is the destruction, the intentional destruction of another human life. And and I love you. I need to be clear with you this morning. That means abortion is murder. 
It is the intentional destruction of another human life. And it is something that is, it is destruction of human life that is happening on a scale that almost defies the imagination. I know we would rather not look at this stuff. I literally saved this to last night because I didn't have the stomach to look at it. I knew the numbers would be bad, but I love you. I got to be clear. We have got to see reality so that we can come to God for grace and get in the game. So according to the Guttenmacher Institute, which is the research arm of Planned Parenthood, um, they estimate that 862,320 abortions were performed in America in 2017. That's the last year we have data for. That is 862,320 image bearers of God, lives taken, lives cut short, boys and girls gone from the face of this earth. Each of them, known by their creator, knit together for a purpose with a unique DNA sequence and unique gifts to share with the world, gone from the world because we have tried to step in the place of God and say who we think deserves to live and who doesn't. And that was in a down year for abortion. Do you know that since Roe versus Wade was handed down, the estimates are that more than 62 million boys and girls have been aborted in this country. Church, we cannot claim to be a community that brings the life of Jesus anywhere if we stay silent in the face of this reality. If we can't be known as a community that is willing to protect the most vulnerable life from among us, we might as well shut those doors right now. Because as James, the brother of Jesus, will tell us in his New Testament book, that kind of religion that says, oh, we value life, but won't lift a finger to help the most vulnerable among us, God sees through that empty religion, and he will not bless it. You might as well shut the doors, because he's not going to bring revival in this place if we keep playing this game. We can't stay silent. And so what do we do with all this? Um, man, this could be its own sermon. Um, I, I want to submit to you two things that I think we've got to do in light of who our God is, in light of what Jesus has come into the world to do and done among us. And um, this could be its own sermon, but I just want to submit to you two things because we can't be hearers of the word only and not doers of the word. We can't leave here with our heads full of knowledge and our fingers ready to say snarky things on social media without our hands and our hearts and our lives willing to open and help people. So what do we do with this? I would submit to you this. Number one, we must be a voice for the voiceless. We must be a voice for the voiceless, just as our brothers and sisters in Christ courageously stepped up in a day when slavery was considered normal and stood on the authority of God's word and said, this is not normal, this is not right. So we, as the people of God in our day, must stand on the authority of God's word and say, I know you think this is normal. I don't think you're a monster. I know you think this is normal, but God has sent me to proclaim to you that this is not normal, that these are human beings, and it is not okay, and it needs to stop. I've spent this whole sermon on being a voice for the voiceless, so I'm not going to do it more right now, but what I will say is I can't be the only one. We have got to find our voice, and I'll actually tell you this, your voice matters a lot more to your friends than a pastor's voice on this front. Your voice matters a lot to your friends, much more than mine. And so we've got to find our voice on this. Each and every one of us has to be a voice for the voiceless. 
And look, I know it's not going to be popular. I'm no fool. I've gotten called so many names on Twitter, and you can go on my Twitter profile and see how I've interacted with people in integrity, grace, and kindness, and the names I have been called. I know that it will not be popular, but this is how progress always happens. You're never popular when you're arguing for progress. You're never popular when you're arguing for the least of these. You're popular when the majority likes what you're doing, and you're not challenging the majority. Historic injustices have changed in this country as the people of God have united. And I know some of you are like, well, you know, the people of God were pretty messed up when it came to slavery. Yeah, let it not be said of us today that we're pretty messed up when it comes to this too. There was a lot of infighting and a lot of Christians that acted inconsistently with the teaching of Christ on that. But no one looks back and goes, those guys are the heroes. Everyone looks back on William Wilberforce and his friends and those like him who believed the Bible and stood up even when it wasn't popular. It has been when Christians, believing the word of God, standing on the weight of the word of our creator, have stood up and been a voice for the voiceless. That human cultures have changed, that justice has rolled down like the rushing waters. And we need it to happen in our day. Church, I think we need to be the people that we have been saved to be. That as Jesus says, that we're salt and light. That if our light won't shine in the darkness, he'll take away our lampstand because Jesus doesn't give his grace to sit dormant. Jesus gives his grace to be at work in the world, to transform. We just saw this last week. If the temple wants to be a fruitless tree, the temple can perish. But if we want to be fruitful, if we want to get in the game, we have got to plead and just say, God, I want to be the person you've called me to be. I don't want to be a pretender that looks like a Christian on the outside but doesn't know you on the inside. We've got to be a voice for the voiceless. We've got to shine the light of Christ's kingdom wherever there is darkness in this world. So we need to speak up. That's number one. Um, But we cannot do that in a way that undermines our main message. And I think um, what I'm about to talk about is why a lot of pastors my age um, will uh, be slow to enter into this topic. Because here's what I am aware of. Um, I think there's been a lot of damage done to the cause of life by the cruelty and hypocrisy of those who claim to be pro-life. I mean, just this past week, there was a a meeting in uh, Walnut Creek City Council where they were uh, considering a policy that would basically um, restrict anyone from coming near. Like, it's like weird, like post-apocalyptic. Like, you can't come near this building. There is a zone that you may not enter here. And and I was like, gosh, that's so weird. Why would they do that? This is America. What in the world? And, And what I began to find, and someone from our church here was actually at the meeting, and I got to hear about this, is, well, all of this came about because people on the streets were shouting at the women and calling them Nazis, videotaping them, trying to shame them. And look, let me just say this. If, if, if that's been you, like, I know you're passionate about it, but you're not helping. It doesn't help to call God's children Nazis. I've never seen someone's mind changed by that. Well, I guess I'm a Nazi. I guess I'll change my mind. You're not helping. And this happens in a thousand different ways. And I don't want to be too heavy on you, but I feel like the Lord wants me to tell you that if you've been harsh and cruel and called people names and looked down upon them for the choices they've made in life, you were not on the side of our Savior Jesus in this particular matter. 
the Jesus who loves not only the children in the womb, but the women carrying them as well. And I think a lot of damage has been done by fools masquerading around us, pretending to be pro-life when they're really just pro-birth. When they're really not interested in doing a thing to lift their finger and to help these women, but simply expect them to do more and try harder and live up to our moral standards. And so look, I want you to hear me. We must speak up. This does not undo the first 30 minutes of my message. But we must do this while also being a sanctuary for the broken and the needy. Um, My pro-choice friends will always come back to me when we start talking about human rights and dignity and um, what makes a human. They will always say, okay, well, that sounds really nice, but what about the women? And like, what about the women? I think we should help them too. I'm pro-humanity, pro-life. I think we should help everyone insofar as we are able. And this always shocks my friends because I think there are just so many fools out there that carry the term pro-life that are actually pro-birth. They are masquerading around as if what Jesus wants us as the people of God to do is to stand up and shout to people, do more, try harder, make better choices in life. That is not the ministry of Jesus. And so I just want to ask some questions this morning. Did you know that the women seeking abortions are not our enemy. Our enemy is the abortion industrial complex that makes millions off of this and the spiritual forces of darkness behind it driving it all. Do you know that Jewish tradition teaches that abortion was taught to humans by demons? Should it surprise you the sway that it holds in our day, the way that it goes beyond reason, that it feels like there's something dark over this? That's the enemy. It's never the women. It is always the ones animating and driving and manipulating them for his purposes. The women seeking abortions are not the enemy. They are humans who, like the unborn, are just as in need of our love and our care and our help. I think some of us need to get out more and to get to know more people and to get to know more life experience. Because when you do, you will learn that most women, they don't get an abortion because they think it's cool. I know there's some crazies in pop culture that talk about that as like a rite of passage. Most of my pro-choice friends think they're a little nuts. If you get out and talk to women, um, rare is the woman who will say, I did this because I wasn't thinking. It is often the case that I felt like I had no other options. I didn't know what I was going to do. There's a sense of helplessness. There's a sense of brokenness. There's a man in the scenario that's been a bum and been a jerk and always somehow seems to escape notice in messages like this. Not with Jesus. We cannot make women seeking abortions enemy. We cannot claim to be pro-life if we only speak up for the unborn children and do nothing to lift our finger to help our sisters among us who are in tragic situations. Did you know that abortion steals not only the child's life, but it destroys the life of the women who get them? This is a thing that nobody's willing to talk about today, but like if you do any sort of counseling or walking with people in life, you certainly will find that this is true, and the statistics back this up. Did you know that following abortion, women are 34% more likely to develop anxiety disorders, 37% more likely to have depression, 
110% more likely to abuse alcohol. And this is the one that kills me. 155 more likely to commit suicide. See, the pro-choice movement, it's not only killing our children, it's killing the women among us. It's not only killing the children in the womb, it's killing the women who are carrying them. And if we don't care about that, then I would return to my point about shutting the doors. We cannot claim to be pro-life if we will do nothing to lift our finger to help a woman who is burdened and feels like she has no better options. So yes, we must be a voice for the voiceless, but we must also be a refuge for those who are broken and hurting and feel like they have no better options. Otherwise, if we can't do those two things together, we are not pro-choice, we are pro-birth. And if we cannot do those things together, we cannot claim the name of Christ in our endeavor. The Christ who didn't come to condemn anyone, but who came to lay his life down and take on our brokenness upon himself so that he could trade us his life back in return. This is why James says that if you're not willing to lift your finger to help those in need, your religion is useless. You can't claim to know the God who has so loved you in that way and then turn a blind eye to the suffering and the pain of his image bearers around you. And so we must provide better options for women who are broken and hurting or in are in difficult situations. And church, I think that's got to be our response. To be a voice for the voiceless and to be a refuge for the broken and for the needy and to, like our Savior, speak up for those whose voices are often not present in the conversation. To draw attention and say, I care about justice. I care about them. I'm not going to let them be overlooked. But to do it in a way that is not driven by anger or human zeal gone out of control, but to do it in a way that is driven by redeeming love that sees all humans is in need of God's grace and redemption in their life. And so that's the response I want to call us to this morning, church. And in order to, I know that's really theoretical. I want to make this morning practical. And so um, what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to invite up a friend um, named Sophia Gavano. Um, Sophia works with an organization called Love Life. And this is an organization that, um, as I've gotten to know them, uh, really seems to do these two things well, of being an advocate for the voiceless and caring for the mamas carrying them. And so I want to invite up my friend Sophia right now to have her share with us some specifics of how do we respond to this? How can we get in the game? How can we be a church that is a voice for the voiceless while also being a refuge for the broken? So come on up, Sophia, and give us what you got. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me here today. It is such an honor to be with you this morning on Sanctity of Life Sunday. And uh, just to hear from Pastor Chad's heart and the scriptures on the truth of being a voice for the voiceless. Like he said, I serve with a ministry called Love Life. I'm the city director and missionary here in Antioch. And we serve, um, our mission field is Antioch, Concord, and Walnut Creek. 
And uh, the mission of Love Life is to unite and mobilize the local church to create a culture of love and life that will result in the end to the orphan and abortion crisis in America. I'm not sure if you know this, but one in four women who have an abortion identify with being either Protestant or Catholic. And in the same month of their abortion, they are actually attending at least one church service. So that means potentially a woman could come to church on Sunday morning and that very week go and make a decision to take the life of their innocent child. So to us, that sends a message that we have to change culture. Our churches should be the very places that women are running to to get the help that they need. The women who are in a crisis pregnancy should be able to come to the mothers and the sisters of the church or the pastor to get sound biblical counsel that will lead to life, not to run to the local abortion center to get the counsel that leads to death. And so what we do is we bring the hope of the gospel and the help of the local church. We go out to local abortion centers and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with abortion vulnerable families. We commit to them that we will help them to walk this thing out, that we will be their ally, that we will be their friend, and we will provide for spiritual and material needs that a mom would have in order for her to carry her baby to term. We do this by partnering with the local church with all of you, because we believe that God's answer to this greatest moral issue of our day, the issue of abortion, is not going to be found in the Supreme Court or with our governors or with our president. It's going to be found here in God's church, the greatest organism on the face of the earth, the church that has the power of heaven available to us. So we believe that in churches, there are women right now that have been grieved over this issue that would be willing to be a mentor to a mom, to walk out the needs that this young mom may have. A lot of the women that we actually encounter at the abortion clinics are orphans themselves. They don't have family to walk with them. They don't have the support that they need to walk with them. And so that is why it's so important for us, the body of Christ, to embrace these women and lovingly walk with them and disciple them. We also know that oftentimes women will choose life, um, but unfortunately uh, their child will end up in foster care because as earnest as they are to want to raise their child, their circumstances may not change. We also believe that in the church that there are families that are lovingly and willingly ready to open up their hearts and homes to these children to care for them and nurture them. So we care for the orphan inside of the womb and the orphan outside of the womb. And lastly, as much as we plead with women to choose life, there are women who will choose abortion. Sadly, um, you heard the statistics today. When you choose an abortion, when a woman chooses an abortion, there is grief and pain that they will have to walk through and walk out in their life. And the only one who can heal them is Jesus Christ.
And so for those women who do choose abortion, we offer post-abortive um, healing uh, Bible studies to walk alongside of women to be able to move towards healing through the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, so if you're here today and you have abortion in your past, or if you know of someone in your family who has abortion, I just want to remind you that it is not the unpardonable sin, that Jesus Christ came to seek and to save that which is lost. He came to set the captives free. He came to heal us not only spiritually, but emotionally as well. And so if you're struggling with the pain of abortion, we really want to encourage you to seek post-abortion healing services. I have a table out front with some information on that. And just to let you know, women, there's some cards in the restroom if you'd like to take one home for that. Um, but again, I'm honored to be here today with you and to spend this Sunday morning with you. Next week, I would like to invite every one of you to come to a Love Life informational meeting. Love Life is a vehicle by which you can get activated and involved in ministry locally here. There may be some who say, I'm willing to go to an abortion clinic and, and pray for just an hour and share the gospel with broken and hurting people. Where else in our community would you be able to know where broken individuals and people who are scheduled to die are going to show up? There's nowhere else except for an abortion clinic. So maybe there's some of you here today that say, I would be willing to go. There may be some of you here who are willing to say, I can mentor a mom or I can open up my home to foster care. I'd love to be able to share more about that next week at our informational meeting. It will be directly after the service in the, the ALC. And I believe we'll be serving coffee and donuts. And so we would love for each of you to come and hear more about that. Thank you so much and God bless you. You can take it. You want to keep it? Okay. Thank you. Oh, can you see why I wanted her to share? Um, all right. I'm going to close with this. Here, here's the whole reason I'm preaching this sermon today. Um, my vision for this church is that we would become increasingly known in this community is the church that is wonderfully pro-life. Is a people that care deeply about life inside the womb and outside of the womb. Is a people that are willing to speak up for the voiceless. And as a people who are a refuge for those who are hurting and needy. I love what Sophia said about, man, do you know the one place in your city that a broken, hurting person will be at? I'd love to see our church become the refuge that might be the second place and might become the first place that someone in that situation would come to. So that it, as I've been praying for our church, I just have this vision that what if, what if a woman who got an abortion in Diablo Valley and was like so many other women wrecked about it, what if she knew that she could come to this place 
and to be loved and cared for in spite of what she's done. Not to be looked at funny, but like Jesus, to look her in the eyes, pick up her face, give her dignity, grace, and love. Because she would know all of that because the love and the grace of Jesus Christ would so radiate from this place. What if word really spread from that woman to where maybe the broken and helpless would show up here before showing up at a Planned Parenthood? Saying, I don't know how I'm going to care for this kid, but I've heard you maybe would be able to help. Talk about an opportunity to bring the life of Jesus to Diablo Valley. That's my hope for our church. And really, that's my hope for the whole world because I've, I've been thinking about this. What if in the valley of the devil, in the middle of a state that has announced plans to become a sanctuary for abortion, there was this pocket of life that said, there's a better way. We're not gonna be a sanctuary for abortion. We're gonna be a sanctuary for life for the child in the womb and the woman outside of it. What if in the heart of all of this darkness, God began to shine his light and love of his kingdom of a better way? What if God is right now stirring up in churches all over our country, a new abolitionist movement that can change our country and our world? Church, it's happened before. It has happened before and it can happen again. And and here's how it's going to happen again. It always begins with the people of God encountering the grace of God where they're really at. Pretenders can't get in this fight for justice. We'll burn out. We'll treat people cheaply. But the great movements in history have been birthed by people who so caught up in God's love for them in spite of what they've done that they become powerful lights reflecting that love and grace wherever they go. And so look, I don't know where the sermons hit you today. Maybe you've had an abortion. You've been carrying that guilt ever since. Maybe today is the day that you need to come to Jesus and lay your burdens down and say, I can't carry this anymore. It's killing me. It's triggering me. Maybe today is the day that you come to Jesus and hear from him, neither do I condemn you. Go in peace, daughter. You are the very reason for which I have came. That sin doesn't get to define you. That's not bigger than my cross. I came to defeat that sin. Maybe today is the day you repent of that sin and bring it to him and find life and healing and forgiveness in his name. Or maybe for you, you haven't had an abortion. You just pressured someone to get one. And and I know you had your reasons. It might've been in some sort of love, but, but you've participated in this as well. And maybe today is the day that you repent of that sin as well. And maybe for a lot of us, maybe we need to repent of sitting on the sidelines critiquing people, being judgmental instead of lifting our fingers to do something to help. I I don't know your story, but I think that we probably all have some repenting to do in light of this message because this is an area of great brokenness in our world. I think we all have some repenting to do in light of this, but here's why we don't have to fear that because this is the whole reason Jesus came, that the light has come into the darkness and the darkness has not been able to overcome it, not for 2,000 years and it will not overcome it today. Jesus has come to take away our sin and to make us a new kind of people so defined by his love and his grace and his life and that his light would radiate through us with redeeming power in this dark day. This is what Jesus loves to do. And what I love about our God is the way that he seems so pleased to take people from the deepest fringes of darkness and make them his greatest light. So don't you dare think 
that your past disqualifies you from a future because Jesus is bigger than your past. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna end our service by singing a song that I know we have all heard. Um, I know you've heard the song. What you may not have heard is the story behind the song. And I think it just beautifully illustrates all of this. Uh, There was a man named John Newton who was a slave trader who made his living oppressing and abusing and pressing down other people whose humanity he was denying. And then Christ saved him. And it changed everything about his life. It caused him to see the world in a new way. And John Newton went from a slave trader to joining the abolitionist movement. And he wrote a song that we are still singing today that celebrates the power of God's redeeming love. And so what I want to do is I want to um, read for you what's written on his epitaph, because I think this is such a good summary of the power we will need to respond to this sermon. And the power that is at work in this room this morning. Listen to this. This is written on his epitaph. John Newton, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had labored so long to destroy. Nearly 16 years and only in bucks and 27 years in this church. I don't know your story, but I can tell you this from what I know of the Bible and history, that can be your story this morning. And so what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna pray for us and then we're gonna take some time to respond to this message. And I wanna encourage you to get honest with God this morning. None you can say that's going to surprise him. And again, I think he maybe brought us here to deal with some things in our life this morning, not out of anger with us, but because of his love for us. So I want to encourage you, you can talk to him right where you're at in your seat. Um, But I will also say this, that if, if you would like someone to pray with you, if you feel like, man, I'm just overwhelmed, this is too heavy for me to carry, what we see in the New Testament is that the people of God are called to carry burdens one another. And sometimes lift one another up before the Lord. And so if you would like to receive prayer for anything in your story this morning, I want to invite you that as the band's singing to come forward, we're going to have people across the front here that would love to pray with you and lift you up to our great God, Savior, and King, that if you don't have the words to pray this morning, to pray His blessing over your life, we'd love to pray with you and minister to you this morning. So come forward and receive prayer. And then when you are ready, when you have gotten honest with God, I want to encourage you, if you've trusted in Jesus, if this is your hope in life and death, I want to encourage you to grab the communion elements in front of you and remember the gospel, that Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed so that our past wouldn't get to define us, but that his life would get to define us so that there could be no sin that is unforgivable, not even the one that we've talked about today, and so that our past wouldn't get to define us, but the love of God would. And so... um, We're going to sing, we're going to pray, we're going to take communion, and then we will close by singing that final song that we all know to respond to the great love of God that has changed lives throughout history.